Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. There is, of course, a right way and a wrong way to put a sausage on a grill, and that, as a character in Silas Marner remarked, is something that's come up since my time. Grilling sausages, I mean. When I was a boy, we had a number eight Stanley Range, a huge black object that filled the whole house with heat, not just the kitchen. When we had a fry, which was every Sunday morning after half-eight mass, we cooked it on a big iron frying pan on top of the Stanley. The recipe was simple. Melt a large dab of butter, tip in the sausages, and cook until golden brown, as the cookbooks say. The sausages would probably create enough fat to cook the rashers, but if not, another large dab of butter was called for. Black pudding followed, then one egg each. In the autumn, we cooked field mushrooms as well, peeling them first for some reason I can't remember now, discarding the stalks and frying them in butter until they were soft and black. The juice they left behind in the pan was delicious, poured over bread. That was the best of all. Fried bread was the greatest delicacy, containing in itself the white purity of the bread and the vast quantities of fat left behind by everything else. Some people used to cook fried bread in beef dripping, a huge iceberg of dripping, warming slowly into liquid, the bread swimming in and gradually absorbing it. But my mother would have none of that. Bread fried in dripping was bad for the heart as far as she was concerned. Certainly dripping had its uses. It kept the beef moist, for example, and no roast was complete without its coating. But that was as far as it went. Bread should be fried in butter. Nowadays, however, I can't tolerate a real fry. Years of negative publicity has conditioned me into thinking of it as a risk, or at best, a kind of culinary sin. The Sunday morning fry has become a Sunday morning grill, a few paltry rashers drying up like clothes on a clothesline, a spitting sausage, toasted bread. Even though I might drown the toast in hot melted butter, it has none of the old fried bread about it, a sanitised modern version of an old sin, like playing the lotto instead of poker. Just a restless feeling by my side. It's called open viewing. It's when hordes of complete strangers tramp through your home on a Saturday afternoon. Your house is for sale, on the market, up for auction. The very businesslike woman from the estate agents recommended an auction. You'll get a better price, she said. The market's good and getting better. But it's not her fault that everyone and its dog in the entire neighbourhood has already been in for a good gawk. Viewing houses has become a sort of suburban pastime to while away a dreary Saturday and for neighbours it's a hard-to-resist opportunity to have a good poke around. They're not going to buy, of course. I'm a neighbour, they whisper. 
in a pretend apologetic voice to the nice young man from the estate agents who has to stand at the door handing out the vital statistics of the house to all comers. Precise details of a place that was once your refuge from the world are now public. These non-buying neighbours, familiar strangers, look through your wardrobes, open your kitchen cupboards and peer into the hot press. Of course, all that is on show is a carefully edited version of your life. A lot of your possessions are now scattered in an ever-increasing number of boxes around your friends' houses, waiting for you to fetch them back when you move, when the house sells. If the house sells, you would want to after all this. Mrs O'Reilly from Two Doors Up has been in. So has Joan Connolly from across the street. They came together, like an outing, a pleasure trip. Fingering through your cosmetics lifting the edges of your carpet as if they cared what the floorboards were like underneath and opening and closing your kitchen drawers, taking it all in, loudly talking about the pokey bathroom and commenting that 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 yellow is really a desperate colour for a dining room. You're less bothered about complete strangers. You've made the house as anonymous as possible, removed any piece of paper that had your name on it, the bills that were pinned to the notice board in the hall, the colourful faraway postcards on the mantelpiece, the yellowing envelopes stuffed with letters that were in the bowl on the dressing table, accusingly waiting for you to find the time to write back. They're all in a box now. They've moved house long before you can. Anything precious is packed away too. Like the silver-framed picture of your parents' wedding day, its pocket size makes it a perfect memento of an afternoon's outing for some light-fingered viewer. Even before you leave this house for good, a large part of you is already gone. You never stay for the viewing. You'll get a blow-by-blow report from the very efficient estate agents on Monday. When it's safe for you to return to your house late Saturday afternoon, after the open viewing, you notice the change. It's still your house, of course. But little by little, it stopped being your home. I'll light the fire Place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs. Corbusier, the French architect, has gone on record with his much-quoted maxim that a house is a machine for living in. Tom O'Neill, a Dublin garage owner, will go a step further and say that a house is a home for machines to live in. Mr O'Neill of Grove Road, Glasnevin, you see, keeps a full-sized motor car in his living room. Yes, you heard me right. I did say motor car. He thinks that it is ideal fireside furniture. After all, it has comfortable leather-covered upholstery and nice brass trimmings. At first, his wife Kathleen had misgivings when he broached the subject of giving his 70-year-old international harvester auto buggy pride of place amongst the household gods, but in time got used to the idea. Mind you, she says, some folk think I'm crazy. It's not every day you find a car in the living room. 
Now she admits she likes the look of the thing as she works around the house and finds she can hoover under it quite easily. People, she maintains, have all sorts of ornaments in their living rooms, so why not a car? I couldn't agree with her more. How much more handsome, say, an 1893 Daimler-Benz than an ornate, corpulent Victorian sideboard? Or a De Dion Bouton voiture to a huge oleograph of the Staggett Bay? Or a resplendent Hispana Sueza to a dark, many-caverned Edwardian tallboy? Space alone once inhibited me from using the semicircular back seat of a discarded Lagonda in a bay window at home. And that good old steam man, the late Miles Nagopoline, would have happily traded in all his furniture for a good old 485 locomotive with German slide pistons and poppet valves. What a splendid thing to curl up and browse in of a winter's evening always remembering you stoked the boiler. After all, what is it but another trophy? Some people of African associations display the stuffed effigy of rhinoceros or zebra. More timid souls content themselves vicariously with a flight of the wild duck in glazed pottery on the sitting room wall. The whole folk history of a society could be gleaned from these treasured possessions to be found in what J.P. Dunleavy calls the withdrawing room. Let social historians take note. Queen Victoria, it is said, started the fashion of accumulating and displaying objects having no aesthetic value or indeed intrinsic worth when she retired to Ellsburn on the Isle of Wight to put in 40-odd years a morning for Prince Albert. She found it unbearable not to have everything her husband had used around her. His guns, fishing rods, books, decorations, stamps, uniforms, hobbies, not to mention a myriad of wedding gifts and presentations. Soon everybody followed suit by surrounding themselves with articles of association, or as the dealers put it in their more genteel way, Objet de vertu when selling, but which they bluntly dismiss as bric-a-brac when buying. Some houses have managed miraculously to survive with their holes, as it were, still laden with marvellously unuseful objects, such as onyx sphinxes as doorstops, lamp standards masquerading as spear-brandishing matabili, elephants' feet as piano stools, and the horns of ibex as hat-racks. But most houses have acquired the curios and ornaments of succeeding generations as well as retaining some Victoriana. Some of these decorations, however debased, often have respectable artistic lineage. Hard to think that those hideous, stunted, tiled fireplaces, which are, by etiquette, it seems, required installations in all modern houses are really vestigial remnants of cubism, that the body of zigzaggy wallpaper goes back to the jazz modern movement of the twenties, and that much of the unwieldy furniture and the chromium dianas is by Walter Gropius and the Brauhaus, admittedly out of Barbara Hutton. But, as Mrs O'Neill would agree, 
There's no accounting for human taste. Still, let this be said for Tom O'Neill and his 1910 International Harvester Auto Buggy. It is not merely an anemic objet d'art reclining in superannuated idleness on his heart drug. At least once a year, its owner wheels it out to compete in some veteran rally, and for good measure, but also, I suspect, to keep them on his side, takes the whole family along for the ride. You couldn't do that with a chaise long, now could you? We come into being stamped with two indelible labels. One is unique individual, the other is member of the human race. There are other minor labelings which you can change, such as nationality and creed. But the first two we cannot change, because they're in the very nature of not alone all human beings, but of all entities. They're mutually relative. Each gives meaning to the other. Each creates the other in meaning. We can't erase them, but we can try to ignore one or other of them and thereby create a situation which is unreal. A large element in the dissatisfaction with modern life, deeper than either politics or economics, is that one of the labels is being repressed or ignored thereby creating unreality. The labour which is being repressed is that of unique individual. We are made conscious of this by way of frustration and discontent, which finds expression by way of politics, boredom and violence. The notion of unique individuality is not a romantic whimsy. It's a fact. And everyone has the evidence for this fact quite literally, at their fingertips. Some years ago, a mass circulation newspaper offered a large cash reward to anyone who could produce a fingerprint which was an exact duplicate of the particular one which they'd printed. The reward was never claimed. It was a sure bet on the part of the newspaper, for no such duplicate exists. The police and the law courts throughout the world accept that every human being has uniquely individual fingerprints. There are similarities. That's in the nature of things. There are not identities, and identity is not similarity. Though every face is composed of the few details of two eyes, a mouth and a nose, yet every face varies. Again, there are similarities, but not identities. Though we, through unfamiliarity, see all the sheep in a flock as alike, the shepherd sees each sheep as an individual. 
No two leaves on a tree are identical if we examine them closely. Every single product of mass production, from cars down to pins, is unique. The die stamps the metal. There's both action and reaction. The die affects the metal, but also the metal affects the die. And in the next stamping, it is an affected, changed die which impresses itself on the metal, again itself to be affected and changed. On a long run, the accumulation of small changes becomes patently evident. We know now from microbiology that the mechanism of conception produces always unique individuals. In the animal world, that seems to be its fundamental purpose, and one small demonstration of this is shown in fingerprints. The unique individual is enormously important. It is always the individual who creates. Every work of art and every invention and discovery has been the product of an individual. Has a committee ever produced a symphony? Is it likely that a board meeting will ever write a sonnet or a political group make a basic scientific discovery? For the justification of economics and ecology and sociology, the individual is being clamped onto a Procrustean bed and reduced to a common pattern, a lowest common denominator. The crafts have died or are being killed and pride and satisfaction in work have gone. The man on the production belt gets more money, but no pride, no satisfaction, for his individuality has been denied and the value of living is not wholly to be measured in cash terms. The supermarket treats the housewife no longer as an individual, as Mrs. Sullivan, but merely as another passive consumer. Choice is limited to that which is profitable. Education has been reduced to a standardized routine, dominated by numerical assessment and the demands of the computer. Individuality is both, in both teacher and pupil are strictly verboten. The sad hippie movement and the pathetic do-it-yourself paint-by-numbers gimmicks are symptoms of the blind, unconscious protest of the individual. The solution to this increasing distortion of reality is not to put the clock back, for that would be absurd. It is to look forward with a fully conscious appreciation of the real and the natural position of man. It is to clean up the dirtied labels and to make them decipherable again, and to realise that what the very nature of things has printed on the labels is much more fundamental than either economics or politics. By the fulfilment of the individual side of our being, we automatically fulfil the other side, that of being real members of the human race. Louis MacNeice, writing, of course, as an individual, once expressed an attitude towards all this. Under the surface of flux and fear, there's an underground movement. Under the crust of bureaucracy, quiet behind the posters, unconscious but palpably there, the kingdom of the individuals.
I was walking along the main street of a small town with a friend, elderly, like myself, but rather more cranky. All went well until we came abreast of a newly painted shop. The colour scheme, bright yellow, red piping. The yellow was pretty violent, a cross between sulphur and dandelion, but if the paint was violent, it was nothing compared to my friend's violence. He bucked. He went, metaphorically speaking, tearing around in circles, howling like a shot dog. It was terrible. When he calmed down, he said hoarsely, Stephen, I don't know how you feel, but I can't bear yellow. I thought it best to say, I can't bear it either. Although I played with the idea of quoting Van Gogh, yellow is God's favourite colour. But if my friend didn't know who Van Gogh was, he would be annoyed. And if he did know who he was, he'd know that the great painter ended up in the madhouse. And I'd get the worst of the argument. I don't like yellow paint work, but I'm not as rabid as my friend. There are lots of colours I don't like. I can't bear grey. I have no love for green. I abominate mauve. Of course, I'm talking about interior decoration colours. Grey wall living rooms and green wall bedrooms are depressing. Anyway, one feels that the person responsible for these low-spirited hues were talked into them. Oh, everyone is grey nowadays. Green is the second choice. It's the fashionable thing nowadays, grey or green. To accept fashion as a standard when decorating is lunacy. Date you and your taste too. Grey, oh, I know, I know when that fellow did his house up last. Fashionable colours. I'm so old, I remember when dining room walls were done in a sort of a soup colour. Mulligan tawny. Soup, roast joint, roast potatoes. The skin of rice puddings, it was terrible to eat in such places. It was like eating off the walls. Then a primrose and daffodil period came in. I must confess we did one room up in our house in that scheme. That was what you might call the jolly jolly, a sunny sunny period. Everything was forcibly gay. Primrose and daffodil were reckoned superlatives in cheering people up. There was an American novel at that time, Daddy Longlegs was the name, I think. Very sentimental. Which the heroine, a lovely girl, is put in charge of an orphanage. She quickly makes reforms, changing the institutional grey, grey mark you, the fashionable colour nowadays, into sunny yellows. After the primrose and after the year came the mealy biscuit period. Very practical, but ghastly. Gave off a sort of a mousy smell. So what do I want? Oh, something fairly sharp and definite, not too studied. A sky blue, maybe. Inside decoration. A dark blue or maroon or even black for outside. Never white in Ireland. It just doesn't last. White is abused in this country. Look at the white suits of garage attendants next time you're passing. Or look at the white marble headstones and graveyards rapidly becoming covered with a green mould. Well, I really set out to talk about was not interior or exterior house painting, but two colours which used to be the joy of all farmers. Farmers red and farmers blue. 
Farmer's Red is red oxide, purchased in powdered form by the thrifty farmer, mixed with linseed and turpentine, and applied lavishly to carts, implements, doors, windows, gates, roofs, garden seats, rain barrels, pumps, dog kennels, beehives, wheelbarrows, meat safes, and anything else timber and metal that comes within the reach of the industrious farmer's brush. Those were the days. And the exact colour of this red, well, it was a thin blood colour. Not much body in it, but it was vivid and had enormous yelling value. You don't see much of it all nowadays, sad to say. Farmers blue belonged to the same class. I mean, the powder could be got cheap and mixed by the farmer. He felt great in having these paints. I mean, he felt he was saving money in giving the manufacturers of made-up paints a well-deserved swipe in the eye. I don't know how to describe farmer's blue, except it was a sort of a double X blue. There was a farmer I knew once upon a time, and he went up to Dublin to attend a wedding. His wife couldn't go with him because she was expecting. When he came back, he had to answer all the questions about the ceremony and the clothes. She was particularly interested in the bride's mother's outfit. Her husband, after some hard thinking back, told her the matron had a flowery hat and a dress of farmer's blue. Farmer's blues and red went into the painting of carts. I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten how the colours were divided, except that the wheels were red. Anyway, the combination of the two fiercely loud colours was tremendous, and the freshly painted cart, jogging along the road, acting on the green countryside like a shout in a tunnel. Yellow is the color of my true love's here in the morning When we rise in the morning When we rise, that's the time That's the time I love the best When my son's girlfriend and her parents were due to visit, we were warned to behave ourselves. Don't do anything weird, we were told. I want for us all to make a really good impression. My husband promised to wear a tie, and I promised not to wear any of my Oxfam stuff, just in case girlfriend's mum might have been the donor. They were due at six for dinner at seven. They arrived at four, before the impression-making leg of lamb was fully thawed and before the sitting-room fire was lit. Cups of tea in the kitchen would have to fill the gap while my husband slipped away to light the fire. As I shoveled a spoonful of Earl Grey into yet another pot to give the tea bags a touch of class, I noticed the heavy mist outside the front window. Bit of a fog, I said. Different weather out the other window, commented girlfriend's father. Sure enough, the side window showed winter sunshine. I think actually that's smoke, said girlfriend, helpfully. Billows of smoke wafted into the kitchen. But as we'd been warned against weirdness, we tried to keep a half-decent conversation going, while husband and son ran back and forth with wet sacks and shovels. The bewildered visitors pretended not to notice the smuts that settled on their hair and faces and continued to sip cold tea from pale grey cups. Finally, my son stuck his blackened face around the door. No good, he said. 
You'll have to call the fire brigade. The phone was on a shelf beside girlfriend's father's shoulder. As I dialed, I noticed the smuts on his white shirt and leaned forward to blow them away before they'd get ingrained into the He turned suddenly, catching me with puckered lips close to his neck. Before I could explain, I got through to the fire brigade. The emergency service was answered by a woman who I knew had been in hospital recently. I thought it fitting that I should inquire after her health, as one does. It's good manners. By the way, I said, when we'd got all the pleasantries out of the way, my house is on fire. Do you think you could organise the brigade lads to come out? The tea got colder and the cups and visitors got blacker. Still, nobody mentioned the raging chimney in the next room. Finally, my son, responding to a quiet threat from me, asked the visitors if they'd like to see the Hiberno-Romanesque arch in the ruined church across the field from our house. I hadn't known they were so passionately interested in Hiberno-Romanesque arches. Their enthusiasm brought tears to my eyes as they fought their way out the back door. It was simply grand when seven large firemen with confidence-inspiring helmets and gear finally made it into our yard. Across the field we could see our guests at the ruined church. Funnily enough, they weren't looking at the Hiberno-Romanesque arch at all. When the last spark had been stamped out, we gratefully invited the seven firemen into the kitchen for tea. By now the visitors had arrived back and were wedged between the beefy brigade men. I caught my son's eye and wondered how we were rating on the making an impression scale. Then again, maybe I didn't really want to know. It was only then I discovered that my electric kettle was banjaxed. That meant boiling a saucepan of water on a gas ring. Anyone got a match? I asked. Seven firemen, three esteemed guests and sundry neighbours all shook their heads. In a house recently visited by fire, we hadn't the means to light a gas ring. At this stage, girlfriend's parents, in the best tabloid tradition, made an excuse and left. Pity, really. They missed the fine roast lamb dinner we had just after midnight. They'd have been really impressed. On this morning's selection, from the Sunday Miscellany Archive, you heard... The Sunday Morning Fry by William Wall from 1997. Saturday Viewing was by Bernice Harrison from the year 1996. A Car in the Sitting Room by John Ryan, 1971. On Individuality by Eric Cross from 1975. Off Colour by Stephen Wrynn, 1970. And Making a Fiery Impression by Mary Argan, first broadcast in 1995. The music was Sunday Morning by The Velvet Underground, Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Quature Pour Saxophone, Spirituoso by Pierre-Max Dubois, performed by The Fairer Sax, Tan's Music by Kraftwerk and Colours by Donovan. The programme was compiled and produced by Lorcan Clancy. Elaine Conlon is the broadcast coordinator and the series producer is Sarah Binchy. And a book you may be interested in, Empty Bed Blues, 
a novel by William Wall, has recently been published by New Island Books. And a reminder of Sunday Miscellany's next live event. Sunday Miscellany Live at the Belfast Book Festival takes place on Sunday the 18th of June at the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast with guests Wendy Erskine, John Toll, Neil Hegarty, Michal McCann and more. For tickets, see crescentarts.org. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website. And you can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.